Blog Talk Radio. We have a really exceptional guest on this episode of the A.J. Bruno Show. Today I'm privileged to welcome Captain Dale Dye to the program. Throughout his remarkable career, he served for two decades in the United States Marine Corps and has since been an actor and technical advisor on many highly regarded projects. Good afternoon, sir. It's great to speak to you. Hi, A.J. It's good to be here with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Sure. Fantastic. So let's uh, first talk about your military background. Uh, I read that you were okay. inspired by a World War II veteran to join the service. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, I, I guess that's uh, that would probably be my uh, my uncle Adrian, uh, who was a uh, an extraordinary uh, sailor during World War II. He uh, was a gunner's mate aboard destroyers in the Pacific, and was uh, at Pearl Harbor when uh, it was attacked. Uh, blown off into the water, got aboard a destroyer, and was sunk in the battle of uh, off of uh, Vela La Vela. So he was kind of a hard luck guy, but but uh, he was a guy who really understood uh, military service and what it means and the business of service and sacrifice, and he appreciated it all his life. And I think that that sort of rubbed off on me. I, he he talked about places and things and adventures and. And uh, and I just knew there was something in that, something similar in it for me. So uh, I'd I'd have to give him a salute for pushing me in that direction. Wow. So you were one of the few Marine combat correspondents in Vietnam. How did you come into that role, yeah. and what was serving in that <clears throat> like in terms of how you saw everything unfold around you? Well, it was it was kind of by accident. I I was originally an infantryman. I was uh, an 81 millimeter mortarman. And um, I, I, I was in about two years, and, and I was really, really getting tired of uh, lugging that base plate and tube around and uh, really seeing not much of the Marine Corps, not much of the world, except, you know, the hills of Camp Pendleton and, and the back of the guy that was walking in front of me. And, I, you know, I, I knew there was something more to it. I, I knew from studying history, as all Marines do, that, that there was – a great wide adventure out there that the Marine Corps did a lot of things, you know, a dollar job on a dime budget, but I wasn't seeing any of that. And, and I was antsy. I, I couldn't decide whether I'd made a mistake and, and, uh, you know, well, there's gotta be more to it than this. And then I ran into a guy, um, a young Sergeant who was, um, a uh, Marine Corps combat correspondent. He was he was out taking pictures and writing little stories about our unit one day, and I it seemed unusual. I'd never seen anything like that before. And I walked up to him and said, "Hey, Sergeant, uh, who the hell are you, and what are you doing?" And he told me about it. And I said, "You mean you mean you can go anywhere and and do anything as long?" And he said, "Yeah, you know, as long as you can." As long as you've got enough talent, enough gifted gab to turn out a little story that they can use in the base newspaper or release to the civilian papers, he said, I can go anywhere and do anything. And I said, whoa, there's what I'm wow. looking for. So I, um, I had been the editor of my high school newspaper, and I kind of used that as a lever to pry my way into it. And I was given some tests, and, and they talked to me for a while to see if I was a complete knuckle-dragging dummy or whether I <laughs> had some facility. And, and uh, lo and behold, uh, they it, it changed my MOS, uh, my military occupational specialty. And, uh, and I, was, I was having a great time at Camp Pendleton and the Marine Corps Air Station at uh, El Toro at the time. And, and then uh, they decided, well, you know, there's a war going on. 
and we think we want some combat correspondents over there. And uh, in fact, we want a lot more of them over there because uh, they're getting killed and wounded. And so, lo and behold, I ended up with orders to Vietnam. Wow. So you went from being enlisted to being appointed a warrant officer to finally becoming a commissioned officer. How was the experience different on each level? Well, um, it was kind of interesting. I, uh, as a, uh, as an enlisted man, and I made it all the way up to master sergeant uh, before I uh, finally succumbed to the prefrontal lobotomy and and went to officer (laughs) candidate school. I, uh, you know, I was I was really I became enthusiastic about the Marine Corps and everything the Marine Corps did and everything the military in general did, because I had such a great opportunity to see all sides of everything. Um, I could go practically anywhere that I could, you know, talk my way into. And I began to, to, you know, serve with sailors and serve with airmen and serve with soldiers and go to some of their schools and, and involve uh, myself in some of their training. And that was really, really special for me. Um, it, it gave me a big, broad look at what the United States military does and how it does it, and in many cases, why it does it. And I was always interested in that. Uh, and then as a warrant officer, uh, they selected me out um, to be a, a public affairs officer. And uh, I thought, well, you know, here I am as the command spokesman for the rest of my days. But it didn't turn out that way at all. Um, In fact, uh, I really started leading at that point and was assigned to uh, several uh, detached and deployed units uh, around the world that that really gave me a glimpse of what the officer's life is about. And yet, because I was a Marine warrant officer and a pretty salty old guy, um, I could get away with things. I could, uh, you know, I didn't have to play politics too much. Um, and I, I liked it. And then I said, well, you know, uh, if, if I can get away with this, with just a red and gold bar on my shoulder here, uh, maybe I should ask to convert my commission and, and see if I can get on to bigger and better things, <clears throat> excuse me, which I did. Um, uh, and I was able to convert my commission directly from, uh, chief warrant officer to, uh, first lieutenant. And uh, was deployed uh, as a then made captain, and was deployed with the uh, uh, the American Multinational Peacekeeping Force, uh, which was euphemistically called a peacekeeping force in uh, in Beirut, Lebanon, in '82 and '83. Hmm. Uh, there wasn't a lot of peacekeeping at that time there. But, uh, that actually no, there wasn't into... a lot of peace. No. Uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, can you tell us about being in that situation and how it differed from the mayhem of Vietnam? Well, Vietnam, uh, even though you know there's a lot of controversy about the nature of that combat, uh, for those of us who were fighting it uh, down on the ground, carrying the rifle and the grenades, it was pretty straightforward. I mean, you can call it what you want to, uh, but it's the same as you know they can call Korea peace action. But for the guys who were fighting it, it was a war. And that's exactly what it was uh, for us in the northern I-Corps part of, uh, of Vietnam. I mean, it was an all-out balls-to-the-wall uh, facing NVA, uh, North Vietnamese Army, uh, regular units, well-equipped, well-supplied, well-trained, coming down from the north. And we were bumping into them and fighting like hell. Uh, so it was a war to us. Um, and then um, later on, 
um, after that war, and uh, we got ourselves involved in uh, uh, the first portions of the Middle East, uh, the first phases of the Middle East involvement for America. And uh, we went in with uh, a force of French and Italian troops, first of all, to evacuate uh, Yasser Arafat and the PLO, uh, and then um, were called back in, and the quagmire, as I like to call it, the tar pit, began. And we got ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper enmeshed in what had essentially been a civil war. And we were a buffer force uh, between the Israelis on one end and, and the, uh, uh, the Palestinian and, and uh, uh, PLO arrayed or aligned uh, guerrilla forces within the city. Um, on the other, and, and it was really a very political mission. Uh, we weren't allowed to do the very simple things that all of us are taught in basic training or officer candidate school. Uh, things like um, patrol, uh, seek and control the high ground, uh, patrol your own perimeter, uh, don't butch up, uh, allow limited access. We weren't allowed to do any of those things. We were, we were essentially functioning under two chains of command. There was a Marine Corps Navy command, um, uh, the forces that put us ashore in Lebanon, and then there was the political command uh, that was being run through the uh, uh, through the United States Embassy. And uh, what the military knew we should do uh, to protect ourselves and to uh, accomplish the mission, uh, which was essentially to be a, a presence, uh, whatever that word means, but to but to be there so that um, forces who were um, wanting to stir the pot in Lebanon would be afraid to do so for fear of retaliation. We, we just weren't able to do that. And uh, as we attempted to do it, and as we tried one thing and we tried another thing, uh, they began to push and push and push. And I'm talking here about dissident units uh, or dissident elements uh, throughout the city of Beirut. Um, and and we weren't allowed to have contact with the Israelis, official contact with the Israelis. So we were really caught in the middle. It was it was a quagmire. And uh, no. and and what occurred finally was that uh, uh, those dissident elements decided that uh, regardless of what was going on, we were an easy mark. We were an easy target. We weren't defending ourselves, and we weren't allowed to strike back. So they struck first. And I think um, in October of 1983, when they hit us at uh, what's euphemistically called the Marine Barracks, it was actually the battalion landing team headquarters, uh, killing around 241 of us, um, what essentially happened was the first shot um, in the global war on terrorism was fired that day. Mm -hmm. It's shocking how much of a role politics played in that whole situation. And I mean... Especially oh, yeah. in Beirut. I mean, this, yeah, I mean, this is a city that used to be called the Paris of the Middle East, and now look at it, what it's like today. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, the fact that absolutely. It's terrible. So uh, going back a bit here to Vietnam, uh, that was obviously one of the more controversial wars in recent times. Uh, despite the really terrible price paid in human life, do you think the cause being fought for was a just one, and could a better strategy have been utilized that would have resulted in defeating the communists? I, AJ, you're you're asking a guy who's who's uh, chewed on this for almost 50 years now, I guess. But um, look, um, I just recently, uh, well, February of last year, I just recently went back to uh, 
to Vietnam with uh, some of my buddies, some of my fellow combat correspondents. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever returned. And uh, it was a, a trip that was haunted by ghosts and memories and that sort of thing. And thank God I was there with some people that I knew and who had been through it with me. It was very emotional. Um, but I came away from something. In fact, let me just tell you, I, I, was, I fought uh, in the Battle of Hue, uh, Hue City, in the uh, Tet of 1968. So I visited Hue and uh, looked at the citadel where I was wounded. And, and, uh, and I looked around me, and there was an entire generation of Vietnamese, uh, young Vietnamese, very prosperous, uh, very happy, and uh, and not at all living under the communist yoke. And and I was sitting with one of my friends, and we were watching this great parade of of consumerism and happy people uh, passing by. And uh, and he said to me, you know, I guess we made a difference. Um, had we not had we not taken a stand, had we not opened up this nation and and let them look uh, past the the horror and the brutality of what they could have, um, you know, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be seeing this, and I think that was right. So to answer your question, um, <clears throat> sure, there might have been a better strategy. Uh, sure, we might have done things differently. Um, you know, I'd I'd have to be a a much more qualified observer to, than to really uh, suggest that to you. And, and there have been zillions of books and television programs written about it. Um, but looking at the shape of the southern part of Vietnam today uh, tells me that uh, we did something right, uh, that we made a difference. And sometimes that's all you can ask for. That's all you should expect is that you made a little difference. Sure. And one of the things I find interesting comparing that to, say, Korea, um, you know, I've spoken to people from Vietnam. Obviously, you're not going to talk to anyone in North Korea. So why is it, do you think, that the Vietnamese government is not as authoritarian in terms of you know, letting its people have some basic freedoms as opposed to North Korea, where it's basically a complete lockdown? Well, <clears throat> once again, uh, you're asking a guy who may not be qualified to answer that, AJ, but here's what I sure. think. Um, I think the Vietnamese saw the light. I mean, I think, you know, the, the Vietnamese Politburo, while they still wave their arms around and stage May Day parades and so on and so forth and, and proclaim to be a part of the great uh, worldwide communist juggernaut, they're not. Um, mm. They've taken a look around at the world and the way the world has developed and what capitalism can bring, what freedom can bring, what individual choice and democracy can bring. And they've glommed onto it big time in a practical way. Philosophically, they, they still proclaim to be not at all interested in that sort of thing and, and dedicated socialists. But that's BS. And anybody who goes over there and looks at that nation, as I just did recently, uh, knows that's BS. Now, part of that, I think, is because they've been exposed through Western traffic and, uh, and access to the internet and proximity to places like Thailand um, that that they have seen the value. They've seen the light. They're in the amen corner now. North Korea has never done that. Their closest relatively democratic ally or relatively uh, democratic neighbor is South Korea. 
with whom they are um, purportedly still at war. And, of course, there's a great Chinese juggernaut on their other border. So they haven't had the advantage of seeing the other side of the coin, whereas I think the northern Vietnamese have. Sure. Well, with North Korea, that's obviously been a, a longstanding problem geopolitically. Some would say that it would have been better if General MacArthur had not only held the entire country but gone into China as well to head off a, a future threat there. <laughs> uh, what's your take on how that whole war panned out, and um, what do you think should have been done? Well, look, um, <clears throat> I'm I'm convinced that we probably should have had a much more limited objective uh, in Korea. Uh, we should have driven the northern uh, the North Koreans out of the South and held there. Uh, but you had you know a relatively megalomaniac sort of uh, megalomania infused commander in in MacArthur who didn't understand a thing about limited war and never would um, or limited objectives and never would. He wasn't cut from that cloth. He didn't think that way. And he wanted to go all the way. And he wanted after the Chinese came in, he wanted to use nuclear <laughs> weapons. He was he was gasping. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I think I think we went into it allowing, and I think uh, Harry Truman was perfectly justified in in uh, firing him. Um, mm. We went into that war unclear about the objectives, and there should have been a lesson there, uh, but there wasn't. And and clearly we paid a price for that later in life. Uh, there was, a, there should be, there should have been uh, a lesson there about, uh, you know, getting yourself involved and meshed in an Asian land war, which, um, you know, pundits had had warned against for years and years and years. We also didn't learn that lesson. But, um, you know, in the end, um, who knows? I think it's it's uh, it may all change in the near future. Um, if our president goes in there and does uh, holds a holds a strong line and yet gives uh, the North Korean dictator a, a little room so that he's not embarrassed and doesn't look like a complete boob that he is, um, you know, we, we we might see a change in this. We might see a final solution to it, because I think once the North Korean people, uh, God bless them. I mean, if you talk about people who are who've lived a horrible existence. There's generations of North Koreans that just don't get it. I think once they do get it, once they're provided an opportunity to take a look around, like the North Vietnamese, um, they'll find a way to make it happen. I mean, they're, they're going to want to save face, and they will, and that's human, and I understand that. But I think we're in for big changes in North Korea shortly. Well, hopefully so. I heard that you favor reinstituting the draft. Uh, how would you see implementing something like that? And given the sheer size of our population now, wouldn't that mean that most of the people would never be drafted anyway? Probably so. I, th I think the answer to the last part of your question is, yeah, that, that's probably true. Um, but look, I don't know exactly how it would be implemented. Here's what I know or what I think I know. The draft was America's great leveler for American males. Uh, it offered an opportunity for two years of your life to get out of wherever the, whatever your life was about and to see bigger things and to see different things and to meet and live with 
and learn to coexist with uh, people that otherwise you would never have seen in your life because you, you would live such a, a confined uh, existence in your hometown or in your home state. Here was a chance for young Americans to, to go and see a bigger part of the world, uh, to get to know people, uh, to get to understand that, that there is a, a common denominator in just being human. And I think we're missing that. I think that's part of uh, all this sort of um, sectarian business that goes on. Uh, so many uh, partisan opinions and, and, uh, and, and a divided nation divided over silly things that never were divisive factors in our nation before. So I look at the draft as an opportunity to become more American, to, be, to become invested in your nation and how your nation does because you put some skin in the game. You serve for a couple of years. You put up with some hardships. You put up with some nonsense. Um, and, and perhaps you, you sacrificed. Those things, I think, are, are part of what makes you a better citizen. I think it, I think it teaches you so many valuable, valuable life lessons, and we really don't have any institutions these days, unless you volunteer to join the military. We don't have many institutions these days that will do that for you. I think you make a good point, but definitely lost something along the way. So yeah. pivoting a, a bit here, um, let's talk about the Conquerors. Uh, back when the History Channel actually made good programs, you hosted a, a fantastic series. Um, what was making that show like? And of all the Conquerors you covered in that show, whose military skills are you most impressed by? Well, <clears throat> I've always been um, a great fan of uh, Alexander. Uh, I, in fact, I was the uh, the second unit director on that movie uh, that Oliver Stone did, uh, and I was anxious to do it because I'd always been a, a fan of, of Alexander. Um, I think he was a geopolitical military genius. Um, he was a leader who combined not only military tactical skills but strategic uh, political skills. Um, of course, who knows what he, <laughs> what Alexander would be like if he had to be uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs today. Um, but I think I think he had the kind of drive and the kind of vision I think great military leaders always have. And I had an opportunity during the making of Conquerors uh, to really enmesh myself in in what we know or what the scholars tell us they know of Alexander. Um, so I, I was uh, particularly interested in that. And in doing the Conquerors, the History Channel, as you said, I, when, when they, you know, just when they were trying to transition from being the Hitler Channel, um, they, they really were anxious to have good programming that had the military themes. And they recognized me as a guy who had a little following um, uh, among TV viewers and that sort of thing, and, and they let me go at it as I wanted to. So I could, I could help write the scripts, I could help do the research, um, and, and sometimes even did little field demonstrations of tactics. And, and, uh, and so that was fun. For me, that was play. And I really liked it, and I, was, I think we did, oh, 18 episodes or something like that, and then uh, the History Channel decided they didn't want to continue. And, 
and I went off and made uh, made movies and wrote books. But that was a that was a fun experience, and uh, and when I went back later on uh, in my career and uh, with, with some of the cable channels and and tried to do more uh, reality programming sort of stuff, um, it. I, the the venue had changed. The platform had changed. Um, they weren't interested in historical facts anymore. They were interested in flash and wow and entertainment. And I think that was to their detriment. And, and I'm sure it was, given what I'm seeing these days. But uh, but but making Conquerors was fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, to me, learning about history is entertaining. So for the fact that anyone would prefer you know, a much trashier form of reality programming compared yeah. to that i just don't understand it yeah yeah i <laughs> i i don't get it either and uh and i was i was interested you know when when they i think i think you get what the cable is offering now but there's the history channel and then there's the uh american heroes channel and then there's uh, god knows what else mm-hmm. but i think they're still casting about and they're ignoring an audience I mean, do you you understand, AJ? I'm sure that, that we now have uh, a generation of young American men and women who have served, uh, who are veterans now, right. um, and coming back from uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and uh, now Syria, and, and they carry with them an intense interest in things military. Uh, and I think uh, if the cable channels were smart, which they're not. Um, <laughs> They'd be they'd be going after that audience. I certainly would. No, there's a tailor-made audience for that, and um, sure they lost by yeah. not doing that for sure. So your yeah. your most known TV role is probably in Band of Brothers as Colonel Robert Sink, and and you were also a technical yeah. advisor in its spiritual sequel, The Pacific. Um, I think mm-hmm. both of those series are just such a tremendous tribute to the greatest generation. What did it mean to you personally to be involved in both of those? Well, look. Um, <clears throat> I guess I guess I have to ask, answer it from a couple of directions here. Let me, let me see what I can do. I I love as an actor. I I love playing real people, where I can get involved in in a real life and do real research and try to bring that person to life on the screen. And I got to do that uh, playing Colonel Sink in in Band of Brothers, um, arguably my most recognizable role. I guess, um, and that was fun. I mean, his his family. He was dead uh, at the time we did the thing, but his family um, sent me recordings of his voice uh, when he was making speeches and that sort of thing. And I was able to really get into that character and bring him to life as the father of the 506 uh, Parachute Infantry Regiment. So as an actor, that that was a, an absolute plum. I loved it. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, they're they're bringing me back to uh, Normandy uh, next month um, with some of the other actors from Band of Brothers. So this long after we made it, uh, we still have a huge following and a huge audience here in America and in uh, in Europe. Oh wow! Now, as as the as the military advisor and the guy who trained the troops and and staged all the combat and all that sort of thing, I mean, I I was I couldn't have asked for a better assignment. They gave me literally everything I wanted and said, all we want you to do is get it right. All we want you to do is make sure it is an honorable, entertaining salute 
uh, to, as you said, the, the greatest generation, or a little mm-hmm. element of the greatest generation. And, uh, and when they turn you loose like that, and they listen to what you say, and they let you get your teeth into it, and they give you three weeks to train troops, and you can train the enemy as well as the, uh, the allies. Um, I mean, for a, for a guy who purports to be a military advisor, as I do, um, and for my staff who, who worked with me and supported me through this thing, I mean, that was nirvana. That was absolutely mm-hmm. the best you can get. Um, and, and we repeated it uh, with the Pacific, but I think we didn't do as good a job with the Pacific uh, as we yeah. did with with Band of Brothers, but but there and there are a number of interesting reasons for that. But but the important thing I think is is what you alluded to, and that is that those series uh, to this day are still being used in the military um, as as uh, periods of military instruction. Um, they go through them. They go through them at, at the Naval Academy, at the uh, at West Point, the Military Academy, the Air Force Academy. Uh, they go through these things, and and young men and women binge watch them. Uh, and and I'm you know it's it's amazing. I actually I go to the grocery store to get bread and milk, and some guy in the line behind me will recognize me <laughs> and start doing <laughs> Colonel Sink lines from Band of Brothers. So. Wow. So uh, it, it was a big, big part of my career and uh, and an absolute joy to do. Sure. Now, they were both great shows. I had a slight preference for the Pacific, but um, I'm sure working out, you had your reasons to prefer Band of Brothers. But. Well, here's what happened. I think we over – because Band of Brothers was such a thumping success and was so popular, we tried to overdo it in the Pacific, I think. Um, we we picked three main characters, um, John Bassalone, uh, all all of whom were in different regiments of the First Marine Division. John Math- Bassalone in the Seventh, um, Bob Leckie uh, with the um, uh, First Marines, and Gene Sledge with the Fifth Marines, and and we kept bouncing back and forth in the ten episodes uh, that presented the Pacific, and I think audiences didn't have that attachment to people they saw every week as they did with one single company of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, Easy Company, um, in, in uh, Band of Brothers. So we mm-hmm. didn't do as well in terms of audience appreciation. Of course, uh, Marines and sailors love the hell out of it, um, <clears throat> but we're, we're a minority anyway, so... Um, mm-hmm. So that that I think is is we we got we got drunk with success I think and went too far with with the Pacific. We should have pulled it back to one of those characters and yeah. stayed with them. That's a fair point. So in Falling Skies, you played a seasoned military officer in a situation probably more desperate than any other character you've played. Uh, what did you draw on as an influence for that role? And uh, do you think your character <laughs> ultimately survived? <laughs> I, I wish I wish I knew uh, whether he ultimately survives. He just sort of disappeared, and the writers didn't bother to explain it to me. But um, um, it, it was interesting. I mean, I I've always I love Robert Heinlein's uh, Starship Troopers and, and another movie that I worked on that was kind of disappointing. But but I I love the futuristic looks at the military, and um, 
and them being used, uh, and, and it's an old movie trope, but the military coming to the rescue when we're invaded by aliens and that sort of thing. And, and Falling Skies was exactly that. Um, and, you know, working with um, uh, Noah Wiley and, and some of the other uh, some of the other relatively well-known actors um, was was a treat. Um, and really, I couldn't do anything wrong uh, because <laughs> who knows what the hell the military would do uh, <laughs> when when they fell apart and, you know, they were devastated by an alien invasion. So it was fun to speculate. We would we would sit around um, and and talk about it, saying, "What do you what do you think would happen if really?" And uh, and that was fun. I, I like doing that sort of thing. Great. So touching on a few of the many great movies you've been in, um, I was a huge fan of Under Siege and Under Siege Two growing up. Uh, what was it like playing that character in um, you know that and its sequel? And uh, what were your interactions like working with Steven Seagal? Well, um, Steven's a larger-than-life character, um, and uh, and nobody gets much attention uh, when when he's on the set. And really, all all I had to do uh, mainly was was sit around a conference table and defend him against detractors, um, <laughs> which was relatively easy to do. But but there was some they wanted to bring some verisimilitude, somebody somebody who would look like a senior SEAL officer, you know, who would, who, who could explain the jeopardy. And it was, you know, I, I've, I often say I'm the most typecast guy in, uh, in Hollywood. It was me and Lee Ermey. God bless him. We just lost him yeah. not long ago. But uh, Lee and I often used to say we were the most typecast guys in Hollywood. And I think that's true. And that, that's what happened in the Under Siege uh, movies. They said, "Well, give me, give me that white-haired guy that knows how to talk uh, military, and bring him in here, and he'll explain the jeopardy." And, and, and essentially, <laughs> that's what happened. But it, yeah. but it was fun, and 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 you make a you make a pretty good chunk of change doing that sort of thing. Yeah, always helps. Actually, I was going to mention uh, earlier in a few minutes. I was curious. I always thought of you two as kind of a, a pair of great, you know, Marine warrior actors. Um, what was your relationship like with him, and do you have any other thoughts you want to share about his legacy? Sure. Um, you know, I've you're you're actually the first person I've really talked to about it since we passed. Um, he was a, a very close friend, um, and and we often got together and and we would talk about you know kind of snicker and laugh up our sleeves at at how we put one over on Hollywood because neither one of us is a trained actor and. And yet, yet we've managed to carve out these careers. Um, and and Lee and I um, were were really kindred spirits. Um, I, I loved being around him. We would do personal appearances together every once in a while, and and we'd call each other and laugh because we'd see some trope on the on the internet that would say, "Well, if if there was a throwdown." Who would win, Captain Die or Gunny Army? And and we just laugh about it you know, as if that would ever happen. But but he was he was such a sweetheart and and had uh, you know despite his image, and I got to tell you, uh, Lee had a had a rough exterior, and I guess so do I. And and uh, and we, you know, we promote that because it's part and parcel of our image. But Lee had a, a very very kind heart. Um, he was he was a man who truly wanted to do what he could to help America's veterans and to support uh, 
um, America's armed forces. He, he felt very deeply, as I did, that, um, you know, we came home from Vietnam and, and didn't get a very welcoming reception. And, and, uh, and we had vowed, he and I had vowed that we'd be part of any effort that made sure that that kind of thing didn't happen to the new generation of, of veterans coming home. So we had, we had much, much in common. Uh, not only our, our Marine Corps service, but the way we thought about things and the way we, we tried to do things. So it was a, I was on location in Baton Rouge when, uh, when his uh, manager uh, called me and said that Lee had gone. And, and uh, it, it wrecked me because I felt, I felt uh, I, it was a throwback to losing a buddy in combat. Um, and I had all the same emotions. Um, he was a treasure, and, uh, and I'm sorry he's gone. But he'll be remembered well and fondly. No, I, I wish I could have met him, too. He seemed like he um, would have been a great person to know. Yeah, great guy. Sure. Uh, I wanted to touch course, on uh, – he'd one... be laughing right now because he's left me as the only, <laughs> as the only veteran now. That So I'm the big target, but uh, <laughs> he'd be laughing about that. Well, I always thought of you two on the same level, so, um, you know, that's great. Well, uh, a couple other movies before we get to our our last question here. I'm I'm sure you've been asked about Saving Private Ryan a lot. Um, To me, that's just such a a pinnacle war movie. Of all the movies you've worked on, do you think that's the one that's made the greatest impact on depicting realism in modern war films? Uh, If... If you're willing to talk strictly about um, theatrical motion pictures, yes. If you're talking mm-hmm. about in toto, no, because I think um, Band of Brothers has to Band of Brothers in the Pacific have to be right there on that verisimilitude level, that reality sure. level. But Ryan Ryan was was a treat to make because Steven Spielberg um, is a wonderful director. Um, as I mean, I don't have to say that. I think. People know that, but but he's also the kind of guy that that trusts that that will let people he trusts help him seriously help him make a movie, and and that's what he did with me. Uh, it was a great experience. I mean, he let me virtually stage that entire thousand man attack on uh, Omaha Beach, and um, and. When, when you get an opportunity like that, and when, you, and when you're working with a filmmaker who has Steven's skills and camera savvy and story savvy, um, and, and then you've got Tom Hanks and, and the other actors, uh, man, you, it doesn't get much better. You're in, you're in what we would call in southeast Missouri, hog heaven. Um, and I think that was really the case. I mean, it was, there were no lows. I mean, it was tremendously hard work but there were no low points i mean mm-hmm. everything was a joy to do because it was being done right and and the director and all the other department's heads were insisting that it be done right um, and if and if i said no that's not right we got to fix this they would by god fix it and when you're in a situation like that um, it's it's a treat i'll tell you so, so what we got was a really, really, uh, really wonderful movie that 
you know, drew kudos all over the place. I mean, the only the only thing that ever disappointed me about it was that it lost the Oscar to Shakespeare in Love. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I think that I'm was still one of those movies better. So, yeah, no. I'm still scratching my head over that one. But no. but it was a delight to make, and and I'm really really glad that it it's another movie that uh, the American military and militaries around the world, frankly, watch constantly. And if you're, if you're entertaining consistently, the guys who really know and who really care, the guys and gals who really know and really care, I mean, you've done some good work. And that's the way I look at Saving Private Ryan. That makes sense. So I'm curious, a few years ago you worked, I believe, your first animated movie um, in Planes, Fire, and Rescue. What was that sort of experience mm-hmm. like for you compared to some of the other roles you've been in? Well, um, it's interesting. I, I have a kind of a distinctive voice, uh, in particular, uh, when, when I'm doing military roles. And uh, I guess that comes from shouting orders and doing close order drill for so many years. But, um, but the Steven Spielberg once told me that he cast me in a, in a movie called Always about firefighters. It was a remake of an old 1950s movie. Um, he, he said, I cast you because I heard you on the radio in Platoon. And I said, that's exactly the voice I want. Um, and so um, that's kind of followed me. I've, I, have, I have been the voice, the radio voice or the helicopter pilot voice um, in, in so many movies that I'm uncredited for, I can't tell you about. But um, what, what happened was the directors called me. Uh, when this animated film came up, and he said, we, we want to create an airplane character that, that's former military and, and talks like that and has a voice like that, and you're it. So I said, hmm. guys, uh, you sure? And they brought me down and, and sort of showed me the character and told me the background, and they said, now look, we, we want you to sort of invent stuff that this kind of character would say. So once again, uh, it wasn't just doing scripted lines. Uh, I was inventing stuff as, as I went along. And, and uh, when, when you get a chance to do that, uh, beside actors like Ed Harris and, and Donald Sutherland and some of the other voices, I mean, you're in, you're in pretty tall cotton, and it's fun. So I, yeah. I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. That's great. So in, in closing, I know you just filmed a movie in Louisiana, and you're developing a new film with Tom Hanks. Can you tell us about those that you're yeah. working on? Sure. Uh, Tom and I, Tom Hanks and I, just finished uh, working on a World War II uh, Navy movie uh, called Greyhound, um, which is a story of a destroyer skipper in the played by Tom in the Battle of the North Atlantic in the early days of World War II, uh, escorting convoys uh, and fighting off U-boats. A great story that Tom wrote, um, and so I went down and served as his military advisor and kind of his confidant uh, on that movie that we shot mostly aboard the USS Kidd, which is now a Fletcher-class uh, Fletcher destroyer uh, moored as a museum ship in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, and Tom has uh, signed on to be uh, my executive producer in the movie that I wrote and will direct called No Better Place to Die. Uh, which is a, another World War II D-Day story. Um, but this takes place before the uh, beach landings. Uh, it's a story of the 82nd Airborne's uh, jump into Normandy and uh, 
They're uh, one a small unit of them who fought and held a vital bridge at Lafayette. Uh, it's called No Better Place to Die. I hope to be shooting it this summer. Um, and we're we're looking around to cast some A-list actors right now. Tom's being sure. very helpful with it. Um, and when you've got a guy like Tom Hanks as your executive producer, you you actually get some traction in Hollywood. So so no, I hope it all works out well, well with that one. That's yeah. um, that sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. And once again, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks, AJ. It was great to talk to you, and uh, good luck with what you're doing. I I hope you get many, many, many more people listening to you. Appreciate that. Hope so, and uh, take care. Thanks, AJ. Thanks. That was Captain Dale Dye. Uh, We had a really great conversation there. Uh, Be sure to join us next Monday. We'll be joined by Governor Robert Ehrlich. Until then, this has been AJ Bruno for the AJ Bruno Show. Signing off for now, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.